I want to say what a blessing it has already been to meet many times with John and Scott. I am very blessed, and I think you're very blessed to have these men in leadership positions. I think what little bit I know about them so far, they are they're geared, they're focused on wanting the very best for you as a people. And so I would ask you to pray for them and for myself. Um, many years ago, I read an article in Leadership Magazine. It was called Baseball Coach Mentality. And the idea was this, in baseball and perhaps other sports, whenever something goes wrong with a team, what do they do? Who do they get rid of? The coach. Now, the question was asked by this writer, do they pause before a new coach comes in and says, okay, guys, are you ready for a new coach? Is everything okay on the team? Do you care about each other? Are you really need to work together? Are you unified? They don't do that. They get another guy as quick as possible. They bring him in, oftentimes in the midst of turmoil. And so he survives for two or three years. Guess what? It all goes south and they get rid of him. And so they just keep switching coaches. And his, his plea was for this. Before a new coach comes in, make sure the team is ready. My role, I believe, as God has led me here, and he has, is to help you with these brothers as a team to get ready for the new under-shepherd, pastor that God's going to bring to you. I want to work very hard so that you are spiritually healthy and ready so that when that other person gets in and stands in this, you're ready to go. You're just ready to go, focused on people, focused on the glory of God. So please pray for us as we work through this process. I can tell you from my perspective and from theirs, our desire is the very best for you as a congregation. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I use deodorant. I'll be real blunt, I pass gas. I'm a real person. You know what that says? I'm going to fail. You know, this is the honeymoon stage, right? Remember what it's like? You first got married, one guy said, it's not long before the stars in your eyes turn to sand. We all know that. So when that time hits, and it may hit soon, and you realize, wow, that guy, I don't know. Please love me anyway. I want to learn to love you as well, as long as we're together. We're going to fail, but we have to be patient with each other and love each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. I think one of the greatest things we can do together is to prefer others above ourselves. That is so much like Jesus. So as we embark upon this journey together, I'm excited as to what God's going to do, the man he's going to bring in here for you, so that you're just waiting to go and ready to go when he gets here. I appreciate the music this morning. Rachel, I thank you so much for leading that. It's encouraging to see a couple of young people over here. Let's see, Luke and Nick, did I get it right? Yeah, I've got a bumper sticker on my car. It says, of all the things that I've lost, I miss my mind the most. So I do have trouble sometimes remembering names. I'll tell you that right now. I do. I, I've been a pastor for 40-some years, and I still struggle with names. So if I forget your name and I say again, by the way, who are you? Please don't be offended. It's just because I'm having one of those senior moments 24 hours a day. It's good to see you this morning. I'm excited to open the scriptures, and I want to talk about a subject that is very dear to the heart of a child of God. I like seeing Bibles. If you've got a peapot or an iPod or some other pod and you use that, that's okay. But make sure, if you will, have the scriptures in front of you. I don't want it to be Ed Fleming's word. I don't want to have those, well, God told me. You ought to say, well, if he did, where is it? Where's in the word? 
So as I read the scriptures, as we share God's word together, especially, I don't often do this, really I don't, but I'm going to look at a couple of passages, rather lengthy passages, and just read through them and have you notice with me what God's saying in them. So if you have a Bible, would you open it please to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Paul has just concluded his major section proving that Jew, Gentile, and everybody is in a bad way before God and they need something other than what they can do. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just an interesting side note, four times in that passage, he speaks about the righteousness of God. Very important. Well, there are lots of Bible studies we can do. I think I'm safe in saying that if you're a Christian, one of the sweetest and most profitable studies is Christ Jesus himself. You love to study about Jesus. You love to read about Jesus and learn. Jesus said in Matthew 11, learn from me. Learn about me. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. Paul was a monomaniac in the rightest sense of the word. He was focused on Jesus Christ. Corinthians, he wrote to them, he said, I determined among you to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And in the book of Galatians, he said, God forbid that I should boast in anything except Christ and him crucified his cross. So of all the things that we can study, certainly Jesus is a wonderful topic. And when you start talking about his title or names, of all the names that the Bible gives and of all the names that believers give to Christ, perhaps, this is someone's opinion, but I somewhat agree, perhaps, None is more precious than the name Redeemer. There are other names we use often, like Lord and Savior, and rightly so because they too are Bible terms. But it seems that this word Redeemer touches our hearts in a very special way. Now when we say Lord, we're recalling that Jesus is the master over sin and death. When we say Savior, we're recalling that He saved us from our sin. But when we say Redeemer, we remember what it cost Him to save us. Redeemer is the name of Christ on the cross. And so when we say that word, the cross is placarded before our eyes. We remember not only that he gave us salvation, but we remember what it cost him to give that to us. And so it's no wonder that much of our music, and I did a study on this one time in Google, you just all the songs that have the word Redeemer in them, my lands, there's a bunch of them. I had I had not forgotten them, but just hadn't remembered them like I should. It's, it's all over music. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, sing my great 
Redeemer's praise. All glory, Lord, Lord, and honor to thee, Redeemer King. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer, seems now I see him on Calvary's tree. Nor silver or gold has obtained my redemption. William Cowper wrote a famous hymn called, There is a Fountain. Fourth verse, ere since my faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die. Fanny Crosby, you know who Fanny Crosby was, don't you? Uh, suffered great affliction, but she wrote much about redemption. One that we often sing, at least I've often sung over my lifetime, is perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, and on and on. So it's something that we're familiar with. I want to point out as well this morning that historically, the word redeem or redemption is not foreign to people of the past. In the ancient world, men, women, and children were routinely bought and sold. They were owned, traded, purchased, and then put to work. They actually could be handed down from one generation to another. You might be born into slavery. You might go into debt and legally fall into slavery. You might be captured by an army and taken as a slave as part of the booty, the victorious spoils of war. But if you became a slave in the days of the Bible, there were only two ways you could be free from your slavery. Only two ways. If you could earn enough money and pay your way, you're out. Nine times out of eight, that didn't happen. Someone had to buy your freedom for you. And that's the idea. Having purchased you, Having paid the price, if they chose to, they could make you work for them as a slave, or in rare occasions, they could set you free. Now, the purchase price for a slave was called redemption money. So redeem means to see a slave, to pay the price, to take them off the market, and then set them free, and never have to go back into that market again. In redemption, there's a divine exchange Somebody pays the price so someone else can go free. In the scriptures, it's more than just in this passage. Do you remember what happened to Israel after 430 years in Egypt? What is that called? The exodus. Ex out of, they were redeemed from their bosses, from their slaveholders. You remember the book of Ruth? Boaz, what was Boaz's title? Kinsman, Redeemer. And perhaps one of the sweetest stories in all of the Old Testament is the book of Hosea. Do you know about the book of Hosea? It's, it's a minor prophet, not because it's less than important, but it's just a short book. God wanted to teach Israel a lesson. Man, did he want to teach him a lesson. He said, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman named Gomer. And I will tell you ahead of time, she's going to be unfaithful to you. Wouldn't it be a great uh, courting you're courting her, you're going to marry her, and you know that after you get married, she's going to be unfaithful to you? I can just hear that ceremony. Well, he did. God wanted to teach Israel a lesson, so he married her, and sure enough, she became unfaithful to him. So unfaithful that she became a woman of ill repute. I'm very careful sometimes in the midst of children to use words that we often use. So you know what I mean by ill repute, don't you? And she went as low as you can get. God said to Hosea, Hosea, 
down there at the marketplace where they're buying and selling slaves. Gomer's down there. I want you to go buy her back. <laughs> Can you imagine the emotions of his heart? Buy her back. What she's done to my reputation, as unfaithful as she's been to me, are you kidding me? Now, that's not recorded, and it's not Scripture, but I'm trying to think in his own heart. What's he thinking? God said, go down and get her. So he enters into the marketplace, and I can only imagine what she looked like. There he is, and he has determined that no matter how high the price goes, he's going to one-up them. And sure enough, he does. He buys her back. He redeems her and takes her home. Not knowing my heart as I should, but what, what little bit I know about my heart, if I were him, I would be tempted to say, now you just stay right there. You're never going to do that to me again. I put up with all your nonsense. You just chill it. What does he say? I'm going to love you. Not just in tongue. I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. He redeemed her. What a glorious picture of salvation and what God has done for us who have acted so often like Gomer and been unfaithful to the Lord. Well, that's all introduction. It's a great doctrine. It's got a whole lot to it. And this morning, I just want to talk about three things. Number one, the necessity for it. Number two, the nature of it. And then thirdly, that word nexus, by the way, I'm not trying to impress you with my vocabulary expertise. The word nexus means, so what does it mean? How does it apply to us? Anytime I have the privilege of preaching or teaching the Bible, I always want to end with answering the question, so what does God want me to do with it? Because listening to a lesson or a sermon from the Scriptures renders us responsible not to just say, well, thanks a lot, I appreciate that, let's go have a cup of coffee, but rather, God, what do you want me to do with it? Number one, the necessity of redemption. Why is it necessary that people need to be redeemed? Well, this is probably, I'm probably preaching to the choir here because I know you've heard this before, but I just want to remind you that every human being is born into this world a slave of sin. We are in bondage to sin. And one thing that occurred to me in studying this again was that no matter how hard we try, I'm going to stop doing that habit, I'm going to quit sinning, I'm going to quit speaking that way, I'm going to quit acting like that way. For a little while, I might kind of turn over the leaf, but it's always the same thing on the other side. What happens? After a while, I just, I just can't help it. I fall back into the bondage of sin, the slavery to sin. It's part of my nature. Paul said in Galatians, no longer are you slaves, but now you're sons, implying that you are sl slaves before your sons. Jeremiah 13, can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Can a leopard change his spots? No. Then you can start doing good because you're accustomed, you're inbred, your nature is to do evil. You're a bondage, slavery to sin. And so though, though we might take great pains to stop, nonetheless, it always ends in failure. Now, here's where I want you to help me. Work with me through this passage, if you will. I'm not going to comment on the verses, but I want to show you in two places in the Bible. Romans chapter 5 and John chapter 8, where it makes it very clear. One is the words of the Apostle Paul. The other is a conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders. And I just want to point out this matter of being slaves to sin from the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 5, or 6, excuse me, beginning in verse 5. Romans chapter 6 
beginning in verse 5. Follow with me, if you will, please. Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from the slavery and bondage of sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died once, once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you Obey. You see that implication there? To obey its passions. Before you were a Christian, you had to obey. It was the master and told you what to do. You were enslaved to it. So was I. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you're not under law for salvation, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? There's the two options. Every person alive is a slave. Period either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And you continue down through that passage, and it repeats that once again. My point is to show you from the Scriptures that this is not a foreign doctrine. This is essential to the Gospel. We are born slaves who cannot free themselves, who must be freed by the purchase price given by someone else. The other passage is in John chapter 8. Would you look there with me as well? John chapter 8. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus is here talking with the religious leaders. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples truly. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When he said that word free, something triggered in their minds and hearts. And so they answered him, ha, We're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone or anything. How is it you say you'll become free? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, that is, habitually commits sin, is a slave to sin. You get the point? The point is that the reason there is a necessity for redemption is because we are born into this world as slaves to sin. Awful lot this season about why Jesus came and was born in a manger. In regard to this particular doctrine, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 61, reading about the promised Messiah, verses 1, 2, and 3, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me too, and one of the things he does, has been anointed to do is to set free those who are in the prison house of sin. 
Fast forward to Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in the temple. It was his turn to read the scriptures. That's what they would do. They would pass the book and someone would stand up and read and explain it. So he went to the passage Isaiah 61, which I just mentioned, and he read that passage, not exactly word for word, but he got the gist of it. He closed the book, he set it down, and he said this, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that did not make them very happy because they were looking for a different kind of Messiah. As a matter of fact, they took him out and tried to kill him and he he escaped because it wasn't his time. But the point I want you to see is that a purpose for Jesus' coming was to set people free who were in bondage to sin, which includes all of us in this room and every person who has ever been born or will be born until Jesus comes again. So that makes it pretty necessary. If I am born into sin, and I live under the slavery of sin, and I die a slave to sin, there's only one future for me for all of eternity, and that is to be separated from God in a place, a real place called hell, with eternal suffering and torment. Never, ever to be released from that. So it's good to remember that Jesus came The gospel is the good news that God sets people free, those who were born into slavery, the slavery of sin. Well, such is the necessity of sin or redemption. Secondly, I'd like to talk about the nature. I'd like to just talk about what does redemption mean? And a fellow by the name of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Romans chapter 3 reminds us of these words. The root word as used by the Greeks, that is for this word redeem, had reference to loosing clothing, armor, animals, or prisoners. Later on, it was used for the loosing or releasing of the bonds of a prisoner or slave, adding one more dimension, by the payment of a ransom. If you combine these two meanings, the word can be defined as, and I quote, the purchase of a release by means of the payment of a ransom price. Redemption carries in it the meaning of ransom. It's the idea of ransom or payment, or another word that we might use is substitution. Theologically, there's another word, vicarious, the vicarious suffering of Christ in our place. In our day and over the centuries, there are those who have tried to replace that word and that idea. But it's very clear from the original language that this is the idea, this is the meaning of that word. Redemption means release as the result of the payment of a price. It is an essential part of the meaning of the word, and it must never be remitted. The truth about us all is that we are not able to pay the adequate price. But thank God someone else has come and paid the price for us in our place. Christ came to ransom us, to deliver us. He paid the price. And so the prison in which we were born and held captive by the devil has been opened, and we who were slaves have been made free. That's the essential definition of the word. Now, if you go to the New Testament, you Greek scholars out there, you'll have to check me on this. There are at least three words translated redeem in the New Testament, and they capture this whole idea I'll just mention them in passing. I'll not even try to impress you with my Greek pronunciations. But I have the notes here and I can show to you if you'd like to see later. There's one word, and it means 
or emphasizes to set someone free from any type of captivity. The word is used in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. This means to be set free from any type of captivity. Then the next word, another word that starts with EX, like that exit sign, which means to go out, it means to, it has the word agora, ex agorazo. The agora was a marketplace. And it means to take someone out of a marketplace that I mentioned just a little bit ago that uh, Hosea did for Gomer. Take them out of the marketplace, but it also implies because of the situation, you had to go into the marketplace with the ability to pay the price. You don't go down there and start bidding and get to the point where you want to buy it and say, oh, I overbid, I don't have enough money. And so they have to start bidding again. No, you go into the marketplace, you have one intention, to buy a slave. And you have the ability to pay the price to release them. And then there's a third word, which kind of combines the first word with a preposition, apa, which means to take away from or to loose out of that with never a possibility of going back under slavery again, ever. Now, in our text... Romans chapter 3, you still have your Bible open there? Look at verse 24. That perhaps is the key verse in this passage. Romans 3, 24. And are justified, there's that courtroom scene again, we're, de we're declared pardoned before God by His grace as a gift gratuitously, not because we earned it, but because He desired to give it to us only by His grace, through, please notice, the redemption, there's that word, carrying all the ideas that we just mentioned. There's a marketplace, buying and selling. Someone comes in with a purchase price, pays the purchase price, takes us out of there, and we never have to go back under that slavery again. But where is that redemption found? What does he say in verse 24? Where is it completely and totally centered in whom? Through Jesus Christ. The redemption for us as slaves to sin was purchased only, completely, totally, sufficiently through the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. So here's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ, God's one and only unique Son, left heaven and came to earth for the purpose of redeeming lost sinners. And may I say, we need to be very careful. I love Christmas time. My wife makes Christmas so, just so. I mean, it's wonderful. If it wasn't for her, I'd be the bah humbug in the corner. That's the truth. I just... I'm just that kind of person. When you find out, you'll say, get that guy out of here. But my wife makes Christmas. But something I say every year, but I, I have to be so careful, is in all of the lights and the presents and the tinsel, what is Christmas all about? Well, we know that people that don't know Jesus Christ are going to use it for personal interests and gain. And I, I listen, I don't criticize them because if I wasn't a Christian, I would too. And even as a Christian, if I'm not careful, I can do the same thing. But what's it all about? What's the central focal point of the manger in Bethlehem? There's a cross behind that manger. It's about Christ coming, knowing that when He was born, having left glory, coming to this world, this marketplace of sin, 
coming into this marketplace of sin with the redemption price, with the ransom price. And what was that? Peter tells us it's not silver and gold. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ that paid fully the price for our release. And listen, this is something that I wrestle with because perhaps more of my personality than anything. But to really believe that I have been set free and that I do not have to embrace sin or make excuses for sin, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, reckon yourselves dead unto sin. If, if you're dead to something, it means it has no influence over you. Yeah, but pastor, you don't know how tempted I am. Yes, I do. Isn't it easier to make excuses and to give in than to really wrestle in my soul? I declare myself, I reckon myself dead indeed unto sin. By the way, that word reckon is a mental term. It's in the mind. Between the ears is where most of the battle goes. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. The temptation's there. It's real. I've fallen before. But you know what? I don't have to. I don't have to. I have the power to say no because I have been released from the bondage. Now, I'm not saying sinlessness or perfection. That comes when we get home to heaven. But even though sin doesn't reign, it still remains. And so it's that battle of sanctification, progressive sanctification, the struggle in the Christian life. What a tremendous thing if I let that grab a hold of my heart and think about that. Jesus, deliver me. I don't ever have to go back under slavery to sin again. If sin gains an upper hand in my life, there's only one person to blame. It's not my wife, it's not my circumstances, it's not my church, it's not my pastor, it's not my neighborhood, it's not my circumstances, it's, it's me. Christ came into this marketplace, perhaps more and more looking like the marketplace of that day. He came with a purchase price, his own life that he gave, and he bought my freedom. He paid for it completely, totally. And he said, come on. No more do you have to live here. No more do you have to obey its orders. You are free. Really, really free. I don't know about you, but I wrote in my notes here, what good news that is. What wondrous, glorious good news that is. Well, thirdly, what does it mean to me? What should I do with such powerful, wonderful, precious truth? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, sinner friend, let me tell you something. If you have never known the freedom and liberty that comes through trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I implore you, I ask you today, trust in Him. He will deliver you from the bondage of sin. Remember what he said in Romans chapter 8? Or John chapter 8? Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But there's a caveat here. The year was 1829. A man by the name of George Wilson had been arrested and tried and convicted of murder and theft through the mail. Because his family was well known, when he was sent to prison, his family made an appeal after appeal after appeal. Eventually, those appeals reached the desk of President Andrew Jackson. 
after President reviewed the files and because he knew the family and their background, for their account, for their account, he offered not just clemency but a pardon to Mr. Wilson. They took the news into the prison. George Wilson refused the pardon. He said he didn't want it because he was guilty and he deserved to die. They told him he couldn't say no. It was a presidential pardon. But he said he could, and he was saying no to it. This is a true story. He refused the pardon. Well, that set forth a tremendous legal battle because the question had never been raised in American history. Eventually, it worked its way up to the Supreme Court, and the decision came down from Chief Justice John Marshall, who said, and I quote, a pardon is of no effect until it's accepted by the one for whom it's intended. He went on to say, though it is almost inconceivable that a condemned criminal would refuse a pardon, if he does refuse it, the pardon is of no effect. George Wilson must die. And die he did. What's the point of that story, my friend? There's a pardon offered you today if you're not a Christian. There it is. It doesn't come from president. It comes from God. The supreme authority of the universe. To you today, he offers pardon. But if you turn your back on that pardon, there's no other option. No other option. Will you take it? Will you receive it? To as many as received it, he gave the authority to become the sons and daughters of God. What a glorious Christmas this would be in your life and those who know you, that you would be free. And believe me, it'll be noticeable. Several years ago, a man came to my church when I had a little congregation in Perry County. Not long after he was there, we found out that he had cancer. He was admitted back into the hospital. And I'd never been able to talk to him about his soul personally, preached the gospel and shared. But I went into the hospital, and one day the God said, ask him, because he didn't have much time to live. Ellsworth Grafmeyer was his name. I walked in the room, I said, Ellsworth, I, I don't want to impose and be too blunt, but Ellsworth, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? No, sir, I don't. I said, Ellsworth, do you want to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He said, yes, I do. And he gave his heart to the Lord. I'm telling you, the next day the family called me and said, what did you do to our father? What did I do? We walk in the room and we don't recognize him. There's something so radically different about him. Now, he didn't take a Bible course overnight, and he was not theologically correct, perhaps, on many things. But one thing he knew, he was lost in his sin, but he became a child of God. And it was obvious, and my friend, what a great thing it would be that God would save you and change you and pardon you at this time of the year. Any time's a great time, but at this time, the light of the gospel shining into your heart in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, Christians, what do we do with this? Well, obviously, we should praise the Lord for it, should we not? Mostly on Sunday mornings, right? Monday's kind of hard. We've got a new work week. You know, it's kind of hard to praise God when you've got to go to work and you're tired and you haven't had your coffee yet. And Tuesday, man, you've had... Is there ever a time, as this thought will cross our mind, and it should, we've been pardoned. 
Communion, every time we have communion, by the way, we're planning on having communion the first Sunday of every month to be structured. That's a bad word, isn't it? Structure and discipline and order. By the way, 1 Corinthians 14, talking about church services, let everything be done decently and in order. So that's what we're trying to do. We don't want to turn you into a liturgical, so formal, you're afraid to breathe out loud and have somebody hit you over the head. You know, there's, there's freedom, there's liberty, there's joy. But, so, but, but praise... I got to tell you, that music this morning touched my heart. Now, most of the time my hands are in my pocket. I'm just old-fashioned. To do this, I'm afraid I'm going to have a lightning bolt hit me, you know. I is God charismatic. So I may not, I, sometimes I might. And if I do, you need to mark that down and remind me of it, okay. But I can tell you in my heart, those words this morning, God is good. It is well. Do you know the story behind it is well? Oh, my. Horatio Spafford lost his son, his property, his daughters, and he says it is well. Can you, can you say today, no matter how bad it may be, can you say it is well with my soul? Then we should praise God. Why is it well? Because there was a day when it was not well for Jesus. When he bought my liberty. Do you have problem really getting motivated to serve God? Think about this doctrine. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom that you've been set free. Run down to verse 13. And don't use this freedom to only care about yourself, but use this freedom to serve one another. That's a great incentive for service. It's a great motivation to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices, 1 Corinthians 6. Glorify God in your body. Why? Because you've been bought. There's redemption. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in my body. Perhaps some of you this morning, I don't know, are going through some really difficult trials. Either you have, you are, or you will be. Do you find comfort in those times? Isaiah 43. God says when the waters come and you feel like you're about ready to go under, when the fire is blazing so hot you feel like you're going to be burned up, don't lose heart. I have redeemed you. <laughs> You're mine. What a great comfort in trials. And Psalm 107 verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord what? Say so. So say so. Tell people, I've been set free. Oh, I didn't know you was in jail. Oh, I was. Yeah, I was. Not the Perry County Jail, the Dolphin County Jail, but I was in the worst jail of all. But I've been set free. And I just want to speak those words. Well, let me close with this illustration. It's called the lost boat. I think it just sweetly speaks to the child of God. Little Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river, carefully placed it in the water, and slowly let out the string. Oh, how smooth that boat sailed. Tom just sat in the warm sunshine, admiring the little boat that he had built. But suddenly, a strong current caught the boat. Tom tried to pull it back to shore, but the string broke. The little boat raced downstream. He ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could, but his little boat soon slipped out of sight. All afternoon, he diligently searched for the boat. Finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, he went home very sad. Well, a few days later on the way home from school, he spotted a boat just like his in a store window. When he got closer, he said, that's my boat. He hurried into the store manager and said, sir, that's my boat in the window. I made it. Sorry, son. Somebody else brought it in here this morning. If you want it, you've got to buy it back for a buck. 
Well, Tom ran home and counted all his money. He had exactly one dollar. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. Sir, here's the money for my boat. As he left the store, he hugged that boat and he said, Now you are twice mine. First I made you, then I bought you back. (laughs) Child of God, we've been created by God to bring Him glory. He made us, but in Jesus Christ, He redeemed us. What a precious, precious truth to our hearts. May that fill our thoughts and hearts this day as we go about our business and whatever we may find ourselves doing. Redeemed how I love to... That's one of the songs I used to sing when I was growing up. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Redeem, redeem, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeem, redeem, His child, and forever I am. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together.